Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. All right, EJ, this is a weird week. You know why this is a weird week? Because it's AFC North week. And you know why the AFC North is really, really weird? Because the quote-unquote worst team in the division, the last place team that we're starting out with, was 8-9. and nine. No bad teams. No bad teams the entire week. I'm celebrating the Ravens, by the way, since they're our first AFC North team, with Baltimore's own. I got Sagamore Rye. Made right over there in B-more. Uh, this is actually a single barrel select, which is 110 proof. So it's going to be a <laughs> wonderful show for me. But uh, before we get into all this Ravens goodness, EJ, buddy, how are you doing? What are you drinking? I'm good. We are halfway through this esteemed series. We have put 20 episodes in the can. We have 20 to go. And I have been released. You're good to go? I've been released. They're happy with my progress. And so halfway through, seems like something to celebrate. We are back with the people's tequila. This is Terramana. And uh, <laughs> I'm celebrating. So here's to here's to halfway through and half more to go. Cheers and, to you, uh, sir. Yes, indeed. It was like six months? Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it'll be a fun so show. Your tolerance is nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, I did... Like a true professional, I did a little testing. Uh, had one on the 4th of July, had one probably on the 6th or something like that. So this is not a, a dry run. I will not face down on the keyboard, but um, still could be a fun show. Uh, well, why don't we get to it? We start off every single team-by-team team season preview by recapping uh, at least a little bit of 2021 and what happened. Uh, avert your eyes, Ravens fans. I know you really wanted to forget this one, but... To make you feel a little bit better, it was kind of a, a freakish anomaly year. They did go 8-9. and nine. They finished last in the division. Uh, their last five games, they went 0-5. They actually ended the year on a six-loss streak. But I will give them a pass because this was maybe the most snake-bitten team in the entire league in terms of injuries. They lost anyone and everyone. You could not find a single unit on this team that was not completely banged up by halfway through the year. Hell, the running backs were depleted before the season even started. <laughs> you know, they were running Latavius Murray and and, uh, and and Devonta Freeman and all these, you know, super old aging running backs out there because they had nobody else because their top three guys, if I recall correctly, all went down. So this was maybe the most injured team in the league, and their record reflected that. I think going into this year, assuming they stay healthy, much different story. And I mean much, much different story. I would not disagree on either point. Ravens injuries were pretty much the story, not only of the team, but certainly the division and, and maybe even the conference. They just couldn't stay healthy. It absolutely affected their record. But when I started writing these up, we always start with the bottom team in the in the division. And I was like, Ra Ravens? <laughs> oh, wait, okay. They were almost 500. Six loss streak, and you and I were talking about this pre-show. I don't think Harbaugh's ever had a five loss streak, and he's been there, we're going to talk about, for a long time. 
decade and a half almost, give or take, and a sixth loss streak, I still would have said that was probably impossible if you'd asked me before the year. Even if if we were doing floor and ceiling last year on this episode, I I would have said, no, you could you could take everybody off. He'd take a bunch of practice squatters and he wouldn't lose five games in a row. And they lost six. And that just shows you how deep the injury bug really cut them. So it's a very different team looking forward this year with all the firepower they have. And I think the outlook's a lot brighter. Since we do do floor and ceiling every episode, last year was the floor for the <laughs> franchise. Like, it it doesn't get any more unfortunate than that. Like, they're not going any lower than that. Sorry. They're just not. I, I think that might have been the sub-basement. That felt below <laughs> the floor. Because every time you thought they were just injured enough... Or, oh, they can't possibly sustain any more injuries. Somebody else would be announced. And you're like, really? Let up already. That's how it felt by the end of the season. But they still had eight wins. And a big reason for that is the power structure of B. Again, one of the most stable franchises in the league from top to bottom. Good ownership, great front office, great coaching staff. Eric DaCosta, uh, EVP and general manager. I mean, we're talking 26 years with the organization. He's been there since literally day one in 96 when they first started up. He has been there from the very beginning, worked his way up, was Ozzie Newsom's protege two decades ago. And he had offers. He had plenty of offers to go everywhere else. Every single franchise wanted Eric DaCosta. He kept saying no every single time, loved where he was at, knew that Ozzie was going to step down eventually. He had a, a GM job waiting for him with an organization he loved, didn't have to move his family. Um, and it, it paid off for him because... He's only been GM for four years, but year after year, continuously, um, you know, building on Ozzy's legacy with the roster that he's built. He's had a hell of a run, and I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. John Harbaugh, same thing. Like you said, decade and a half-ish. He's in year 14 as head coach. Uh, another one of these rock-solid coaches, Hall of Famer. <laughs> At the absolute lowest, they're winning eight games. You know, it's very Mike Tomlin-ish which I think actually they came in in the same year in 08, if I recall correctly. And he's just continuously, again, been one of the best head coaches in the league, one of these CEO types who doesn't call his own plays, but just handles the organizational and um, you know game management aspect of being a head coach. He doesn't distract himself by being a coordinator or a special teams coach or anything like that. He just handles being head coach. And I think that's part of the reason why he's been so good. Uh, and then at the coordinator level under him, assistant head coach and D-line coach Anthony Weaver, his second year. Uh, first, I think, technically being assistant head coach and D-line coach. I think that was his, this is his first year with that particular designation. Uh, did play defensive line for the Ravens and Texans back in the day, so he's a Ravens lifer. Offensive coordinator, Teflon Gregg. <laughs> Teflon Craig, sixth year with the organization, fourth year as offensive coordinator. I gotta say, there's there's a lot of Ravens fans that were that were surprised that he's back for another year, but here we are. Gonna try to make it work. We'll see what happens. Uh Mike McDonald, another Ravens lifer. Year one at DC, technically, but he has been with the organization for a really long time. Started out in 2014 as a coaching intern, worked his way up to linebacker coach by 2020 left to go be the D.C. at Michigan for a year for John's brother, Jim. Did a fantastic job there. They moved on from Wink because they wanted Mike McDonald. Again, Ravens lifer. Brought him in to be D.C. this year. He's going to do an absolutely killer job for them. And then Chris Horton, ninth year with the organization. I think you're sensing a theme at this point. All these guys have been around for a long time. Fourth at special teams coordinator. As stable as stable gets. In the NFL, it's hard to find this kind of stability, but the Ravens do it, and that's why even at their lowest, they're winning eight games every year. The stability shows they don't panic. They keep going. I almost wish in some ways, cough, cough, offensive system, that they panicked a little bit more, <laughs> but they are going to hold the line. They believe strongly in their system and it is a system. It is a whole system from DaCosta to Harbaugh to all the, the the coaches he brings in to execute that system. They are drafting to fill a system, players of a certain role. 
they do adapt, but they know what they like, and they're not going to deviate from that. And every freaking year we do it, we sit around and go, man, they had another Ravens draft. Look at the Ravens draft. They got everybody. How do they get these guys? How does the league let these guys drop to the Ravens? And it's because the Ravens are incredibly patient, and they know what they want, and they're not going to reach for the hottest, shiniest, newest thing. They know a good player will come to them because they're confident in their scouting approach and they are confident enough to wait. And a lot of teams aren't. And every year because of it, they stack class on class on class of very quality draft picks because their system is tried and true and they will hold the line. You know what I find incredibly ironic? This might be the team that uses wide receivers least in the NFL and also might have one of the most accomplished wide receiver coaches. Look at T. Martin here anchoring the notable coaches. Uh, I I, I kind of think, this is sound, sounding weird to say, I kind of think as far as positional coaches go, uh, might be a waste there. Not because he's not a great coach. They just don't really like using wide receivers, but they have one of the gurus of the position. Absolutely. In terms of notable coaches on the offensive side, we've got Mike Devlin starting off. We'll get to T in a minute. Mike Devlin's the assistant offensive line coach, 20 years of NFL coaching experience and a former NFL player with the Bills and Cards. When your assistant offensive line coach has 20 years of coaching experience, that's the kind of depth we're talking about with the Ravens and also one of the reasons that the Ravens have such a strong running game. T. Martin wide receivers coach he's a former university of tennessee quarterback nfl and cfl quarterback but in college this is what you're talking about while he was in the college ranks he had four or five stops in the college ranks these are the wide receivers he coached randall cobb juju smith schuster nelson Aguilar. Marquise Lee, Valus Jones, Tyler Vaughns, Michael Pittman, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Robert Woods. T. Martin coached all of those guys in college. In like that's, a seven-year period, too. Yeah, that's unreal. All of those guys got drafted. Well, Tyler Vaughns didn't. That's okay. All of those guys ended up in the league. I should say that. Um, that's an amazing amount of talent. Most of it at USC, if you're tracking that. Uh, Randall Cobb at Kentucky. Regardless, when you say it might be overkill to have him be a wide receivers coach uh, for the Ravens because they usually feature one or 1.5 wide receivers, you might be right. I, I just I find it really fascinating how uh, you know over the last decade or so USC's been been known as like one of the wide wide receiver U's of the college ranks because they're pump, constantly pumping out guys alongside Ohio State, LSU, Bama. You know, USC was obviously not quite the same as those other schools, but they weren't far off. You know, they were top five in terms of wide receiver um, prospect output, I should say. And pretty much all of them were coached by T. Martin. Like, he's the reason why USC receivers broke the stigma. And if you remember, for a long time, USC was seen as, like, you don't take wide receivers wide receivers from USC because they almost never did well in the NFL. Like, very rarely did they ever work out. There was plenty of them drafted, but very rarely did they work out. But they're on a hell of a run. You know, obviously Robert Woods is probably the best one, but... Like, Juju had a, a highly productive year early in his career. Um, Aguilar's still kicking around. He was a first-round pick. Valus just got drafted. Um, you know, Pittman is the number one in, in Indy. Amon Ross St. Brown was arguably the number one for Detroit last year as a rookie. Like, the stigma's gone, and it's because of T. Martin. So I am fascinated to see what he and Rashad Bateman will do together because this team's going to run so much 13 personnel that Bateman's going to be the only receiver on the field for a lot of snaps. Uh, it'll be probably him and maybe Devin DuVernay or Tylen Wallace. I, I guess we'll see. But either way, like Bateman's going to be the guy. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how he does this year as the guy under one of the better receiver coaches at any level. Yeah, you and fantasy football players nationwide are interested <laughs> in that question. Uh, last Notable coach on offense, Keith Williams, the pass game specialist. We've talked about this as we work through this entire series. Coaches that come from all over. 
and we're going to continue saying that. But Keith Williams is interesting in that he signed playing contracts when he was still playing football in the NFL, the World League, and the CFL, mm-hmm. all three leagues. So you talk about bringing a wealth of experience to your coaching when you get there. Keith Williams is a perfect example. On defense and special teams, a former Raven. That's yeah, a theme. Zach Orr is the inside linebackers coach. He's a former Raven linebacker, not surprisingly, from 2014 to 2016. He's back as a coach. Um, the other thing about this coaching staff is of the non-notable coaches, which is just the ones we didn't pick, Harbaugh has a thing for small school coaches. He, has, he does, doesn't he? He yeah. has a thing for coaches that coached at uh, not – P5 universities or played as players and then got into coaching at not P5 universities. As you're looking through the the bios of all these guys, it's a lot of D2, D3, uh, you know, very small regional schools. He finds coaches that can coach. He doesn't, uh, this would be the coaching equivalent of scouting the helmet, right? He doesn't look and say, oh, you're on the Georgia staff. You must be amazing. He goes and finds coaches that know how to coach and then says, hey, come coach with me. And it's a spread of young to old, but the diversity of where they're drawn from, probably greater than any other staff I've encountered to this point. We're halfway through the series of, man, look at look at the places all these guys came from. Uh, it wasn't you know their name and lights that was catching his eye. It was the fact that they can all coach. It's kind of like uh, the name escapes me who we were talking about earlier on in the series uh, is an assistant wide receiver coach, former uh, wide receiver coach at Eastern Washington. Yeah. You know, small school, but the receivers that he put in the league in one year were Cooper Cup and Kendrick Bourne. So it's like, mm, maybe he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, he's probably got a pretty good idea if you're putting those guys in the league from Eastern Washington, which is not that far away from me. It's about four hours away. Um you know, actually where the Seahawks used to have training camp. Is if it you're putting, west or east of Spokane? I'm curious. Uh, it's just barely west of Spokane. It's almost all the way there. It's over in Cheney, Washington. Yeah, it's out there. Jesus. Yeah, okay. yeah it's out there. Uh, We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But if you're putting folks in the league from a school like that, you've you got a pretty solid handle on your craft, and you'll end up on a staff eventually. All right, free agency. This one's fascinating to me, and we're, we're kind of going with a, a general theme with how they've built their roster. Because when you look at their losses, it, it, none of them were really, you know, massive uh, losses, I would say, individually. But they all kind of add up to a theme. And so, obviously, you know, Latavius Murray, Devonta Freeman, they were gonna, they were not going to be kept around. They were stopgap options at running back. They were older. They have a whole bunch of younger guys they like a lot more. They just happened to be hurt last year. Um, but when you look at the defensive line in the secondary, a lot of older guys that were, you know, either rotational players or were just kind of a little bit on the older side and durability was catching up to them. They really recycled or cycled through that era of Ravens this offseason to get into a, a newer, younger core for the most part. Pernell McPhee, he's gone. Honestly, I'm surprised he's still even playing because his knees got to be bone on bone at this point, but he still kept trucking through last year. Um, Brandon Williams, 33, which I had no idea he was 33 already. I, I didn't even realize he was that old when he first got in the league. But again, lower to mid-30s is when you, you start to see defensive linemen typically start to slow down. So they moved off of him. Tavon Young, when healthy, is one of the best nickels in the league. But he has dealt with a lot of injuries throughout his career in Baltimore. In his six years, he lost three seasons to two ACL tears and a neck injury. 
Um, this past year was the only year of his career, ironically, where uh, he'd actually been active for every game. But he was still banged up during the year. So from a durability standpoint, again, moving off him. Um, and then Deshaun Elliott um, and then Anthony Averett, Jimmy Smith. Again, a lot of older and or not as durable DBs. They're cycling out for a younger core, some of which they just drafted. Uh, and then double that for the defensive line rotation, too, with Brandon Williams and Pernell McPhee moving on. So I, I just found it interesting that they, they're really making a concerted effort to get younger, faster, and hopefully, for the first time in a while, healthier. Lessons learned from last year, <laughs> perhaps? It is an interesting trend, and what struck me is I put the list together is a lot of core Ravens. Um, you know, guys that have been with the franchise for a long time, logged a lot of downs, a lot of plays for this coaching staff, this team, are, you know, it was time to go. And, and football waits for no player. And teams go through this in cycles. And this is one of those cyclic moments for the Ravens where they're saying, mm, we're going to shift a little bit. We're going we're gonna to go younger in this case. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna move this talent out and replace it again with that system in the draft that we have. But it's notable guys like Brandon Williams, Tavon Young, uh, Deshaun Elliott. Those are, those are core Ravens of the recent past, and they're all former Ravens now. So the organization, I don't want to say made itself some holes, made some choices that left it with holes that it had to fill either through bringing in more free agents or the draft. And they did a little bit of both. I also uh, specifically want to bring up the, uh, the Marquise Brown trade. They got a first round pick back for Marquise Brown, which in the current wide receiver market with how much these guys are going for, I thought was phenomenal because as, as reliable as he was to score, I kind of felt like getting that first round pick back, which they then uh, turned, they, they traded back again because the Bills traded up for Kyrie Ilham, and they turned that into Tyler Linderbaum, which considering they also lost Bradley Bozeman to the Panthers, and if we already have Rashad Bateman, and we don't really use two wide receivers to their maximum potential in this system anyway, because we love 12 and 13 personnel and 21 and 22 personnel so much, like there's a significant number of snaps where we only have one wide receiver on the field anyway. Why not just only have Rashad Bateman cash in on the first round pick, get an even more talented center than Bradley Bozeman, and then lean into what we do well? Like, love it or not, Greg Roman's there. So you might as well draft to fit what Greg Roman likes to do, which is run the absolute fuck out of the ball and then use the wide receivers when it's third and seven and they got to get bailed out of a jam. Like, that's what, that's what Rashad Bateman does. I thought getting a first back for Marquise Brown and letting him go be in a system in Arizona that's better for him anyway, I thought all sides actually benefited there, both Hollywood and Baltimore. I will always, always, always go back to Amari Cooper because <laughs> two freaking days and the pick would have been very different. Amari Cooper for a fifth. It staggered me when it happened, and you look at Amari just in a vacuum, Amari Cooper for a fifth, Marquise Brown for a first. And you're just like, I, okay. <laughs> you're not wrong in terms of Marquise Brown gets to go to a more pass happy system where he hopefully fits in Gardel's plans in a way that, that benefits him. I think he'll get more opportunities regardless. And the Ravens do the Ravens thing, right? They get a pick, they trade down and, Oh, yeah, Tyler Linderbaum's there. And everybody that knows the Ravens draft history goes, oh, of course he is. That's <laughs> that's so Ravens, right? That's the deal. So, yes, both teams eventually get better through that swap. But it is staggering to me that Eric DaCosta could pull a first for Hollywood. Given his production and the current market, I would have said a second would have been amazing. A third would have been fine. And he gets a first. So, uh, you know, use your leverage. Get your bag. Also, uh, on the Arizona side of things, like even though Marquise is a fit because um, the Cardinals actually do throw deep to their slot receivers a lot, and that's the mm -hmm. role that he's going to play. So I, I get that on some level. Uh, 
But at the same time, like, man, in this wide receiver class, like you had Christian Watson still on the board at the time of the trade. Um, Wandale was there who still fits that role. And that's what he's going to be doing for the Giants anyway. Like Tyquan Thornton, <laughs> I, I I understand why they did it at the same time. I'm like, do you really want to give up a first round pick and like 20 whatever million dollars a year? In this receiver class, like I just <laughs> in this economy, job. it yeah. literally yes. In this economy, it was it was I, a great job by Eric DeCosta to get a first round pick in an environment where I never imagined he would. So credit to him. Um, in terms of retentions, Tyler Huntley, uh, one of the most valuable backup quarterbacks in the league, they kept him around for less than a million dollars. Oh, that's crazy value that's, for them. Love that. I'm just going to like do the record scratch thing for a minute because you and I were both Tyler Huntley stands when he came out. We advocated drafting him in the late rounds. We said when he didn't get drafted, he should be a priority UDFA. He goes to, again, perfect landing spot, playing behind a player who's very similar to him in style, has a couple of bumps, and then comes out and basically plays the lights out as a backup twice Mm -hmm. proves his worth if any team was truly interested in upgrading a marginal starter and having a true competition you'd go get a guy like tyler huntley you would pry him away from the ravens they keep him for eight hundred and ninety five thousand dollars as a backup in this league who can compete and win games and those two things are not you know they're not mutually exclusive it's he can compete and win multiple games in the nfl as a backup and they get him for less than a million and it's those two things sort of don't add up in my head he's really talented he's young he can win with his legs he can win with his arm he's proven it and they got him for less than a million dollars and i just i don't it does not compute i think the only reason why i I didn't mention it before because I wasn't exactly sure on the rules, but they did use an exclusive rights tender on him, which might be slotted there because he was UDFA. But if he was on the free agent market as a backup, he would cost five to seven times more than that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, whatever. Works out for Baltimore. Good for them. Again. (laughs) Again. Uh, Patrick Ricard, they also brought back for a uh, little under $4 million, you know, fullback, uh, tight end, H-back extraordinaire, however you want to label him, yes. Uh, Kayvon Seymour, they brought back to uh, add to that uh, nickel-slash-dime corner option. They have a whole bunch of guys that can play that role. He's one of them. Uh, Justin Houston, the ageless Justin Houston, brought back for less than two and a half million for a rotational edge rusher that can still be productive at his age. Wonderful pickup for them. Uh, Calais Campbell, this was the big one, 36 years old, still got more gas in the tank, about 6.3 million on him um, for a rotational interior pass rusher slash locker room leader with as much value as Calais has. One of my favorite players of this generation, by the way, like he is the five technique prospect that I compare all five technique prospects to. Like, when DeForest Buckner was coming out, I measured him up to Calais Campbell. I I didn't measure him against anybody else. And he will continue to be the five technique that I judge all five techniques by. Um, He is one of the greats of his generation. He was a great Cardinal, a great Jag, now a great Raven. And uh, I so desperately hope that if Baltimore goes on a run here, they can get him a ring because I really, really, really want him to get one before he retires. And it would help the general appreciation of fans who either caught the end of his career or didn't, you know, in a few years, didn't watch him play. And people say, oh, man, Glass Campbell's great. And they'll be like, yeah, but he was like a Jaguar and a card Raven. He never won anything because people say that about players that they don't go back and watch. And that would be a crying shame in Glass Campbell's case because he is so and has been so dominant as a player for so long. If you talk to players, oh, who's the tough assignment or who was your, you know, who was your toughest blocking assignment three and four years ago? His name was top five on everybody's list that faced mm-hmm. him. You know, he 
has been extremely dangerous. He reminds me of, um, I'm surprised that he's never played for the Saints in a certain way, if that makes any sense. Oh, he 100% fits their mold, yeah. <laughs> he seems like a Saints defensive lineman that has a lower profile, maybe doesn't have the ring, but just goes out and destroys people. That's Calais Camel. So I hope, like you do, that he gets that because it will help elevate his profile. Now, in terms of third-party additions, this was where they dumped uh, most of their money. Kyle Fuller, at only $2.5 million, I know that he's going to be a nickel for them, or we assume he's going to be a nickel for them. And I know he didn't have a Kyle Fuller-type year that we're used to in Denver. I still think $2.5 million for what he can bring at 30 was still a pretty good bargain. Like, he's going to play a significant number of snaps for them as a nickel. Now, whether he's a nickel meaning in the slot or a nickel meaning he's just the third corner and then they bump Marlin inside, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work out because I do think that it, it's tough to project because both he and Marcus are both most comfortable at left outside corner. So maybe it just will depend on who's most comfortable moving off of being left outside corner. <laughs> That's another problem for another day. We'll find out in camp and in preseason who's playing what. But either way, getting him as a third corner for $2.5 million, good deal for that. Brent Urban, he is a typical Ravens-type defensive lineman, uh, you know, coming in the rotation. He's going to give you like 20% of the snaps of just fire and fury. That's what he's going to do. And for 1.1, fantastic value for what he brings to the table. Uh, Mike Davis, it's not a Ravens offseason without signing a veteran older running back. He is this year's version. I imagine that once um, Dobbins and Gus come back healthy, whenever that may be, or you know maybe Tyler Beatty is getting snaps early while they're coming back, Davis will be the number three by the second half of the year. But in the first half of the year, he could get significant work while those guys are coming back. So we'll see. Uh, Marcus Williams was the big one, $14 million. He's going to be their new starting free safety for them. Uh, really natural in center field. So I think that um, he and Chuck Clark are going to work really well in tandem together. Because Chuck, I kind of I kind of like it better when he's more around the ball. Not that he can't play deep, but I think he's more comfortable being around the ball, kind of being down, you know, getting grimy in the box, all that kind of stuff. Like he really is good at that as well as handling man coverage assignments on tight ends and, you know, blitzing and all that kind of shit. He's really more comfortable there. So Marcus as your classic center field free safety. Great. Uh, Morgan Moses, uh, Moses, excuse me, played a significant number of snaps for the jets. And I imagine that he's going to be the immediate starter at right tackle. Cause I don't think Daniel Falele is ready to go. Um, not that he's hurt, but I just I don't think Falele is ready to handle T.J. Watt and Miles Garrett, you know, in the first six weeks of the season. So I'd rather have Morgan Moses there. He'll probably start at right tackle, and Falele will back up this year. And then uh, Michael Pierce returning to the Ravens. He is also probably going to be a starter for them. I would imagine he'll play fifty to sixty fifty to sixty percent, excuse me, of the snaps in total as they're starting nose with, you know, some combination of Matabuike um, and then Brent Urban, you know, maybe Broderick Washington at three technique, and then Pierce and Travis Jones will be rotating at nose, respectively. So, uh, again, a significant amount of money spent here, most of it on Marcus Williams and Michael Pierce, but they got younger, they got faster, and also uh, they got healthier with the third-party guys that they brought in. Six out of the seven guys on this list, the only the only guy I didn't highlight on this list was Vince Beagle because he's sort of just a guy. Fuller's going to play significant snaps. I'm a Kyle Fuller stan. I, he definitely had a down year. I think in a new role, a lot of people have said, oh, he'd be better if he transitioned to safety. Well, a lot of times nickel responsibilities and box safety, not that different. So he, I could see him having a career resurgence, especially in Baltimore. Brent Urban, love him. Former Bear, went to the Cowboys, was sad to see him go. Does something with every snap that he gets. Doesn't get a ton of snaps, is definitely a rotational guy, but does something, makes at least one play every week. If you dig back and look at the film, when I saw he went to the Ravens, I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> that fits perfectly with their defensive line. 
Mike Davis you talked about, Morgan Moses, a starter, Marcus Williams, a starter, and Michael Pierce is probably going to be a starter given, again, that they've moved Brandon Williams and their other interior defensive line prospects on. We talked about them in the losses section. Pierce played 20-something percent of the snaps last year. I think he probably, like you said, plays closer to 40 or 50. Now, does Travis Jones eat his lunch by midseason? Probably. We're going to talk about that when we get to the draft because Travis Jones is incredibly talented. But Pierce is a guy that is familiar with the system, will plug in, like you said, week one, week two. No rookie jitters. Uh, play, my guess, is about half of the schedule before maybe getting overtaken by a very talented rookie. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Speaking of those rookies, by the way, looking at their draft class, 2022 Ravens, most of them not going to play most of the snaps. 2024 Baltimore Ravens, these dudes are going to fucking murder people. Like this class from top to bottom in three years, especially some of the ones that are coming back from injury. Good Lord, this class is going to be crazy. It's unreal draft class. And we talked about this at the top with Eric DaCosta. And one of the reasons I say unreal is I don't know that I've ever seen this before. And we talked about this. We had an episode we put out right before the draft. Unfortunately, because of some publishing hangups, it came out right before the draft. <laughs> but it was called Draft Controllers. And it was about teams that would control different parts of the draft. Really, we were focusing on the first round, teams that had multiple picks, and there were multiple teams that had multiple picks in the first round. So who's really going to shape that top of the draft narrative? But we dropped a reference to the Ravens in there because it's six fourth-round picks. Mm -hmm. Like six picks in a fairly high round of the draft between – Pick 110 and 141. So in 31 picks, they picked six times. One out of every know, five players. Yep. Don't know that I've ever seen that. And in a draft like the one this year, which there hasn't ever been as the largest draft class in a very long time, there was a ton of talent there. We'll go through all of them, but I just highlighted all of them because I was like six picks in the fourth round and a lot of talent, a lot of players that are going to, play significant roles for the Ravens based on the offense and the defense that we've talked about so far. So we'll start at the top because they also had two first round picks. Round one, pick 14, Kyle Hamilton, the safety out of Notre Dame. This is their Deshaun Elliott replacement. If you want to look at it that way, that's probably his best and first role. He was really good at that at Notre Dame, just detonating guys in the box. Deshaun Elliott did that for them previously. Like he said, He's going to have some highlight plays this year, but just like he did at Notre Dame, you're going to see more of those next year and the year after that. The second pick in the first round, pick 25 from the Bills, the one you referred to earlier, they went and got Tyler Linderbaum, the center from Iowa. Probably going to be a long-term starter for them at the hub, and I'd be more surprised if he wasn't. Let's just put it that way. So lots of lots of mm -hmm. pre-draft ink on Tyler Linderbaum. You can go back and check all that out if you're not familiar with him. In round two, pick 45, they take a chance on David Ojabo, the edge outside linebacker from Michigan. Now, they had a lot of beta on him because <laughs> Coach McDonald is their DC, was his DC at Michigan last year. They know who he is as a player, how he practices, all that. Unfortunate injury at his pro day. Bad one. It's going to take him a while to come back. But one of the most explosive edge prospects in this class played on the opposite end from Hutchinson and was just as effective in different ways. So, like you said, this year, pretty limited impact. If he makes it back on the field, it'll be impressive. It'll be a bonus. Next year, he's going to be in the mix to be in that starting rotation for them. So, again, the Ravens have, I don't want to say it's a luxury, it's a it's a gift to their future selves, right? They, <laughs> they continue to stack the rosters so that they're not just 
filling the immediate hole with a free agency loss. They're looking at, hey, when this guy gets too expensive, who's going to be filling his role? That's the luxury that allows them to pick a guy like David Ajabo. Round three, pick 76, way later than I thought. Travis Jones, the defensive tackle from UConn. Beast. Absolute beast. If you want to see who he is, go look at his Clemson film from last year. (laughs) UConn versus Clemson. He tossed them aside like ragdolls regularly. It was ugly if you're a Clemson fan, awesome if you're a UConn fan, and if you're a Ravens fan, you're going to appreciate Travis Jones. That's why I said he's probably going to be eating somebody's lunch by midseason. Not because that guy's a bad player, but because Travis Jones is wickedly talented and also flexible. He, in the Ravens mold, can go anywhere from zero all the way out. If he wanted to, you could play him at five, but certainly four I. So, sure, why not? Just cause. Because he's yeah. that kind of quick and agile at his size, which is significant. Now we get to that... <laughs> What do you want to call it? Double stuff, fourth round? Quadruple <laughs> sextuple stuff, fourth round? Um, they start off with pick 110. Daniel Falele, offensive tackle from Minnesota. Huge prospect with better feet than you'd think who can sit behind Morgan Moses, which is ideal. If he was thrown into the fire on week one, it probably wouldn't be pretty. Again, not the impact for this year, impact for years down the road. Pick 119, Jalen Armour Davis, the cornerback from Alabama. This is another one that I feel stupid for not calling pre-draft because he fits their cornerback with good size who is physical, might be a little stiff, but uses the boundary really well. Like, that's Jalen Armour Davis. That's a Ravens corner. Perfect system fit. Pick 128, Charlie Kohler, the tight end from Iowa State. This is going to be their, I'm not going to call him wide receiver because he's officially a tight end. This is going to be their receiver three or receiver four. Oh, immediately. He's their big slot. They're going to play Bateman and they've already got Andrews and they're going to, you know, we talked about, well, who might be the other wide receivers for the Ravens, right? Like Dev Duve is going to get some play there but he's still going to be playing special teams james prochet as a slot receiver i really like but like you said he's their small slot he's their quick slot he's their route slot when you need to bring in a third or fourth wide receiver that guy's going to be charlie kohler because that's what he does he's really tall he's very good at finding space turn his numbers back to the quarterback lamar's going to love him for that and very quickly he's going to become that reliable third slash fourth receiving option i'm not going to call him wide receiver three he's just receiving option three or four here's my guy finally i get to talk about my guy you've been talking about your punt gods for the entire first half of the series (laughs) pick 130 from the bills they go jordan stout the punter from penn state punter i thought was the best punter in this draft which turned out to be punter nirvana i guess i there's so many punters picked this year um jordan stout uh they the ravens moved on from both specialists and you know, got the best punter who is a weapon. Um, we'll see that play out over time. Still in the fourth round, <laughs> pick 139, Isaiah Likely, the tight end from Coastal Carolina, a smaller version of Charlie Kohler, so the more move-oriented. Um, not a great blocker unless he is the lead on wide zone. Mm-hmm. There is one block he can make, and that is it, and he annihilates guys on that block. Other than that, any kind of stand-in, pass protection, sort of static, mm-mm. nope, not going to push people off the ball in the run game. But if he is the lead on any kind of orbit motion sweep, wide zone, like he knows how to find a guy in space and level him. So I'm sure they'll use him there. And then last pick in the fourth round for them, 141, Demarion Williams, uh, the cornerback from Houston, the other corner uh, across from Marcus Jones, who was the bigger of the two, caught my eye during scouting Marcus Jones as a very reliable, and I would have said mid-round corner option. Ravens agreed, pick him up in the fourth. They have one more pick in the sixth, and of course, because they're the Ravens, they make it count. Pick 196, Tyler Beatty, the running back from Missouri, who I called the best outside zone running threat in this draft because Missouri runs a ton of outside zone. And Tyler Beatty is a maestro at that system. He has some magical runs. Yes, they did a great job of blocking because 
the rest of the offense understands that system, but his ability to push to the outside, have just enough patience, cut at the right time, and burst up through that hole. Again, we said, you know, San Francisco or turns out Miami would be ideal places. If the Ravens are going to run outside zone, Tyler Beatty is an ideal weapon from this draft to do that. And they pick him up in the sixth, right at the right at the end of the draft. The the thing that stuck out to me as I was watching this draft unfold, because I remember when the Hollywood trade first happened, we're like, they're already kind of thin at receiver. Like, what's <laughs> going on here? And then they started taking tight end after tight end after tight end. And we're like, oh, they don't they don't give a shit. They um, don't care. They don't care. <laughs> tight ends are their wide receivers. But looking at the uh, looking at the mock or not the mock, looking at the draft as a whole with who they took, Tyler Linderbaum. Okay, great zone center prospect like if we were saying the whole time like stick him in an outside zone system where he's reach blocking guys or you know if he's uncovered he can do the little jam on the scoop block and then get up to the second level and still hit his landmarks on a mike linebacker that's in like a double zero which is a really 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 hard block to do but he can do it um daniel falele didn't really fit his own system but if he's just like kicking out on on the lead where like you know that it's just gonna be a cutback anyway like yeah who cares that's fine that works um like you mentioned tyler Beatty, really smooth exceptionally good kind of slashing back in an outside zone system and then all the tight ends they took with Kohler and likely like the one thing as you mentioned likely can do like if you're getting him on the move in like an h-back type role which is stuff that Patrick Ricard already does for them but likely is a more explosive receiving threat than Ricard is but what likely can do is just get moving at the snap and then put all 240 pounds into that kick out on the lead on outside zone and try to spring that lane front side he can do that now Kohler he's not going to block for shit but when you look at him athletically, like it's like a nine seven six RAS, six six and a half, thirty five and a half inch vert, uh, four six in the forty sub seven three cone. Like he is really really fluid and really really tall. So he is straight up the other other tight end in thirteen personnel that either he's going to be kind of sliding underneath is that receiving threat on the backside on the play action off of wide zone where you're rolling Lamar out, or you can go into 13 and then go empty, which they're going to match up with base anyway. And all of a sudden you got a linebacker on Charlie Kohler in the slot. And then it's just easy money. Like he's not there to block. He's there to be the receiving threat off of those wide zone looks. Now from a macro perspective, one of the things that Roman's been frustrated or been criticized for. And one of the things I've been frustrated with him is he's not really doing a lot of, even though they have a great run game, he's not doing a lot of the run concepts that I think will then help Lamar be a more effective passer. They don't really use him on rollouts. They don't really bootleg him a lot. They don't really get him in space. Like when he runs off a of play action, it's because they're doing like straight up, like either inside zone or, you know, you know, gap scheme stuff where it's like a str more of a straight kind of handoff where he's inside the tackle box and then he'll kind of have to wiggle and escape and everything like that. I would rather they lean into the outside zone stuff more and then boot off of it so that he's already running. He's already out in space. And at that point, linebackers are going to be scared to death and they're going to have to come up and try to tackle him and leave windows behind for Kohler and likely and Andrews and all these tight ends because you can't just stay in coverage all day or Lamar's going to get 20 yards anyway. So I really am encouraged by what I saw in this draft class because to me, it signals what I hope is more acceptance of a lot of the run games that are working in the league, which is, you know, uh, embracing inside zone, embracing outside zone, embracing a lot of the motion at the snap, um, you know, bootlegs, all that kind of stuff. And you don't have to lean entirely into it. Like not even Kyle Shanahan does. Shanahan uses a wide variety of, of, of runs in his system. McVeigh uses a wide variety of runs in his system. But they still use the outside zone stuff and boot off of it because it's good. Like it works. It's worked for 40 years. I would like to see the Ravens do more of that. And looking at their draft, I kind of think they will because they're building for it. I'll bet you a dollar right now that hopefully hopefully it's in the red zone but it doesn't have to be in the red zone that we will see Kohler lined up on the backside 
of an outside zone, and he will chip block and slip. Oh, yeah. Has to. Like, I want to see that so badly because they're going to, whoever is lined up across from him, if their DC is worth their medal, they're going to be like, ooh, when you get Kohler, tear him up on one-on-one blocks because he, again, is he is nothing as a static blocker. He is really, really poor at that. And they're gonna they're gonna pin their ears back. They're like, I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna backside this thing. I'm gonna go right through him. And Kohler's gonna chip him and slip sideways. And Lamar's gonna boot, dodge that rusher, and there's gonna be six six Charlie Kohler standing out there waiting for it. And I I'll bet you a dollar that we're going to see that. I would love to see it in the red zone because it'll be a touchdown. Um, but it will happen at some point this season, and we're going to say, mm-hmm, go back to our preview episode. We called that one because it's coming. And one of the only tight ends that I would even trust to man him up, the Ravens just drafted him because <laughs> he's 6'4", and there's not a whole lot of 6'4", you know, safeties in the league like there's more that come out every single year but it's still not exactly a common thing to have like a dedicated tight end eraser you know in the mm-hmm. mold of like a j-ron curse like there's not a whole lot of j-ron curses uh kyle hamilton for the ravens at least that's that's what i theorize he's going to be he's going to be the third safety um the nickel safety the dime safety you know anytime they're doing um a three safety nickel or a three safety dime, he's always going to be the one that's down low. I I don't really trust him to be deep at all. Um, And there's a whole bunch of different types of nickel and types of dime. And it depends on matchup. It depends on, you know, where you're at on the field, what the down and distance are, all that kind of stuff. Like if I recall correctly under wink, the Ravens literally had like 10 different types of, of nickel packages. So it, it's it's it. going to be highly specialized, but Hamilton is going to be the guy that matches up against, um, you know, Fryermuth in the slot. He's going to match up against um, really any of any of the Cleveland tight ends because they have a million of them. Najoku, like that's his role. If they're in quarters and he's got to you know carry number two vertical and number two is a wide receiver, like you're you're kind of fucked. Not going to lie, but. I don't really think they're going to make him do that. I really don't. I think they're going to put him into position to succeed, which is go be an ass kicker down low, take away tight ends and man, blitz really well, play the run really well, you know, be that kind of hybrid safety linebacker type. And and he's going to be really, really good at that. Uh, Ojabo, like you said, super explosive, very fluid, might not play much, if at all, as a rookie, and that's okay. They don't need him to. They really don't. Um 2023 is going to be Ojabo's year. And then Travis Jones, I kind of want to see him and Pierce on the field together because how are you going to run on that? You're not. So I almost kind of have a conspiracy theory that they're going to kind of go back to that early 2000s, um, you know, Ravens look where it's like, okay, you know what's better than having two, uh, you know, two 330-pound defensive tackles? Why don't we have three of them? And put them all out there. Just see what happens. Like, I think that's what's going to happen with, with Travis Jones. He's too good not to play. So, man, this class overall, uh, really exciting. We're heavily projecting what we think they're going to be used as. That's just what we think they're going to be used as. But considering the the skill sets all these guys have, I would be very surprised if they're used any other way than how we just described well, that doesn't put us in a box at all. <laughs> we're we're totally safe now. Yeah. Uh, oh, we're, no, if somebody's going to clip this up and bring it back to oh, us in like a year coming. when Kyle Hamilton's playing free safety, we'll be like, fucking A, come on. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, here's your receipts. You said uh, in the middle of a 40 podcast streak, and I'm holding you to it. That's all right. The- what makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
PDFA class, uh, I think DaCosta and his staff fall somewhere in the middle with UDFAs. I'm pretty comfortable with their approach. They definitely bring in um, a decent amount of them. They tend to almost like their coaching candidates go for some smaller school prospects that um, a lot of times are local that their scouts have seen, uh, but they're not afraid of bringing in folks from from bigger schools as well. They brought in quite a few. We're going to highlight five or six. Anthony Brown, the quarterback from Oregon, is the first one, again, because he fits right in that mold of Lamar and Tyler Huntley, and Anthony Brown has a lot of similar skills. It has no pressure to play whatsoever right away. They're bringing him in to see, hey, does this work? Can we have another one of these that we can stash on the practice squad that nobody else was interested in drafting? Uh, Slade Bolden, the slot wide receiver from Alabama, um, kind of a Hunter Renfro type, but light, light, light. Not, <laughs> not Walmart not Hunter Renfro's. Renfro. <laughs> yeah, not not the same neighborhood necessarily, but similar skills, uh, just on a lower level. One of my favorite players in this draft thought he might get drafted. Really hoped he would. Makai Polk, the wide receiver from Mississippi State, big guy, six three, one ninety five. Wildly productive, and I know everybody's going to say, oh, Mississippi State's an air raid. Of course he's going to get Uh-uh. Wasn't all that kind of production, and it was against all of your favorite DBs in the SEC. Mm-hmm. He had good days against many highly drafted DBs. Didn't get drafted for one reason or another. Ends up, again, the Ravens being coached by T. Higgins. Like, every opportunity to succeed. Um, yeah, still on the roster. Emeka Imezi didn't stick on the roster but was also a guy that i really appreciated from north carolina state i even turned you to his cause late late before the draft super Uh, fun super fun great player something going on with him i think it's probably the injury history he didn't stick on the roster but i'll mention him anyways um bradarius ham i didn't highlight uh offensive tackle from auburn um again just them bringing in big bodies to see what they could do on the offensive line and then they bring in a pair of edges that we well that we were interested in in terms of jeremiah moon uh the edge from florida who we kept mistaking for other people when we were watching his tape uh unrefined but at an athletic specimen at edge and you gamble on those udfa bring him in see if there's anything if anybody can turn him into something it's the ravens a guy that I spotted at UTSA when I was uh, looking at a particular corner prospect and um, our buddy Brad Spielberger, who works for PFF, is kind of my uh, keep me honest board throughout the draft. <laughs> and he he drops me uh, he drops me little tidbits and I dropped him. I drop him draft tidbits and I sent him Charles Wiley after scouting late one night and said, I bet this guy ends up in a camp like. He has some flashes. He's not probably going to get drafted, but I think if he ends up in a talent, you know, a talented defensive line coaching staff, he could become something. He's there's something here. Um, so Charles Wiley, of course, ends up in the Ravens camp, and then Zacoby McLean, the linebacker from Auburn, just a freaking hammer between the tackles, just a flat out old school SEC hitter. Not at all surprised he ended up in Baltimore. And another guy like that, Diego Fago, the linebacker from Navy, who we saw at the Shrine Bowl. Um, old school, hardcore, downhill. Do you remember fill the who gap. it was that he hit at Shrine where he detonated oh, it was, some kid? It was no, he didn't. And that was the nicest thing about that. I actually have that play on my phone. I posted it on Twitter. Uh, I was during the game, and it was um, Brock Purdy. It was Charlie yes. Kohler's quarterback from Iowa State, and he gave a little handoff, like, similar play to the one we were talking about earlier that we'd like to see the Ravens do more of. Little handoff, which was fake left. Everybody flowed left. He looked to the center of the field and took off running right, and Diego Fago was waiting for him and could have decapitated him. He <laughs> was in perfect position to literally remove his head from his body, but it's an all-star game, and he sort of gently popped him with his shoulder pads and laid him down after after purdy's Define eyes got about the gently. size well <laughs> he compared to what he could have done he could have broken bones it's literally true. purdy was running to him blind and turned his head and saw diego Fago, who is a good sized linebacker about 240 looking right at him going man what are you doing like you should have <laughs> looked earlier and he put him down but he could have killed him like yeah, yeah. 
I think uh, the two that I'm most excited for here are, are Slade Bolden, just because I think he has an opportunity to at least make the team. Um, he will have to compete with a whole bunch of other slot types, you know, DuVernay, Prochet. But other than that, I mean, if they carry five, which I'm assuming they're going to carry five, like even the Ravens will carry five. They just won't use them all. He's got a <laughs> decent shot. Um, you know, he does. He is really, really nifty as a as a mm-hmm. slot receiver. Not, uh, not fast at all. Like he's not nearly Kyle Phillips, who's like legitimately fast and is also a slot receiver. So he's not there. But I think he's worthy of a roster spot just because he's nifty, he's smart, he's tough, he's all that classic, you know, gritty white slot receiver shit. <laughs> uh, he, he definitely fits that mold. Um, Jeremiah Moon is another one I'm really, really fascinated by. Long, lanky, strong, not super fluid, not super bendy, but I, I've never really considered the Ravens to care a whole lot about that they tend to care more about length and power and 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 effort and all that kind of stuff like you know the the Pernell McPhee's of the world like if we're looking for a young guy to replace what Pernell McPhee brought to the table Jeremiah Moon is somebody that I think could stick in that in that mold so at least two or three guys are probably gonna make the roster as far as which ones it's tough to say but I would put uh, if if I was going to bet on UDFA's making the Ravens, uh, as degenerate as that sounds, if I was going to bet on him, it would be Bolden and Moon for sure. I'm putting money on Polk. I can't get off the wagon now. I Probably <laughs> three and a half months before the draft, right after Shrine Bowl, I was like, why are people not talking about Makai Polk? And if you were looking at him at that time, his consensus draft position was about 370. There's only 265, 270 picks in the draft. So he was like 100 picks into UDFA. And by the time the draft came around, he was at like 155. And he didn't get drafted. So there was a sort of huge surge of people finding his tape late and going, wait, we got a 6'3 receiver from the SEC that was the number one target on his team and and crushed a bunch of really good corners? Like, why Mm -hmm. are people talking about him? So... Uh, I I got a ride or die with Makai Polk. Uh, team floor, team ceiling. Last segment of the show. This is floor and wins and ceiling and wins. As I alluded to at the top of the show, their floor was last year. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. They bottomed out, and they still won eight games. So I'm going to go with eight wins as their floor because they're better on paper this year. And I can't imagine that their circumstances will be worse than last year. So give me eight as the absolute floor. But because of the state of the AFC and how absolutely bananas that conference is, their ceiling isn't that far off. I have it at 11, and that's no slight to them. But the AFC North is incredibly tough. The AFC East is incredibly tough. The AFC West is incredibly tough. The AFC South has at least one team that's incredibly tough, maybe two. Uh, we we think too um like there's really no easy wins in this conference at all and uh also they're playing against a pretty tough nfc east team or not nfc east or actually no i think it is nfc east if i recall correctly um but either way like i they're playing against some teams in the nfc that aren't going to be slouches at least two of them so uh i just i can't i can't see them winning more than 11 just because at minimum, the conference in the AFC itself is just too tough for me to think that they're going to climb above 11. Yeah, my floor matches yours at eight. I have trouble believing that things could go wronger than last year in terms of what happened to them. My ceiling's a little tighter. I put it at 10 for a lot of the reasons you talked about. And could they win more than 10 games? Absolutely. If Lamar absolutely ascends in the sort of character of his MVP season and Greg Roman flexes a little bit and decides that wide receivers aren't the antichrist (laughs) they could win they could win 11 or 12 games they could go on that kind of run but if I'm looking at what's likely to happen given the strength of the conference given the fact they're going to have to grind out wins given the fact that they have not been as explosive in a traditional sense um, offensively, 
I'm going to say double-digit wins in a 17-game season would be really solid. They would be in the playoffs. They'd still be a team that nobody wants to play late in the year if they're playing well. So I'm going to say 10 as the ceiling and 8 as the floor. Even worse, they don't play the East. They play the NFC South. They got to go through Tampa and New Orleans, Uh, both on the road. They ain't winning more than 11. That's nothing against them. They're just – it's – like looking at their schedule in order, like at the Jets, final give that to them. Then you're hosting the Dolphins, who just waxed the shit out of them last year. Uh, then you're on the road to the Patriots, not an easy game. You're hosting the Bills, definitely not an easy game. Then you got the Bengals. The Giants, I'll give them. The Browns, I'll give them. And then you got Tampa, New Orleans, back to back. Carolina, I'll give them, sure. Jags, yeah. But then you got Denver, you got Steelers, you got Browns, you got Falcons, Steelers again. And then you finish on the Bengals. That's tough. It's just tough. It's it's they're a really good team. They're going to make the playoffs. I'd be willing to bet a enormously irresponsible chunk of money. They're going to make the playoffs, <laughs> which is kind of what matters, but in terms of pegging them for the first seed and you know, getting to that 12-13 win territory you're going to need for the one seed. I don't know, it's a little rich for my blood. It's just a it's a tough tough schedule. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult road for them. They're a talented team, talented coaching staff gonna do well that's why i was comfortable with a pretty small window between 10 and 8 because you know they're gonna be quality but they're gonna have to have a bunch of breaks go their way instead of against them like they did last year to get anywhere past 10 11 into that rarefied air and it's it's just gonna require a lot of things lining up happens sometimes but if we're looking at likely outcomes meh, maybe not as much well, that'll do it. Uh, I got to say, this is probably the best last place team we're going to talk about the yeah. entire series. Because, <laughs> yeah. again, I was surprised that they were the first ones we hit up. But technically speaking, because of tiebreakers, they did finish last in the AFC North. Tomorrow, we're hitting Cleveland, who also had the same record at 8-9, and nine, but through whatever layers of technicalities they finished third and then after that uh we got we got pittsburgh and cincinnati so absolutely loaded week of teams to talk about and then remember on friday we're wrapping it up by picking you know defensive player of the year mvp uh you know all those you know yearly awards but within the division itself so uh if you're a ravens fan you're listening to this for the first time make sure to come back every other episode this week so you can figure out who you're going to try to beat the shit out of for the next six months And uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Talking Browns. Later. Take care. Take care.